0: turn with me to the book of Job, just about in the center of your Old Testament, that would be great. We're going to be looking at chapters 8, 9, and 10 today. i won't be reading all of those. It's long, but we will be going through selected verses. We have in this book, uh, there's going to be a number of sermons that take bigger chunks, so we will be doing selected verses as we go through there to get the sense of the whole. Um, And today, we're in Job. 8, 9, and 10. So, let's begin with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the book of Job this morning to learn more about how to react when we're in the depths of despair. How to react when our friends are in the depths of despair. And Lord, sometimes we don't know what to say and we don't know what to do. And we don't know how to bring hope to ourselves or to each other. So teach us where we find hope. Tell us what we need when we're in despair, and show us what we have. Keep us from the depths of despair by keeping us close to Jesus. So give us hope, build our faith, help us learn from you this morning. We pray, speak through the story of a man called Job, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen amen. I had an interesting conversation with a group of pastors two weeks ago. We meet online every month, uh, mostly for sharing prayer and support, make fun of each other. Uh, And we started comparing notes on... And I would venture we're all somewhat similar in both worship and preaching styles. So it's not that any of our churches looks dramatically different from the others. Now, as I shared with them the week before that conversation, I read an article on this same subject that I found to be really interesting. The article referenced a recently released survey that found that the pandemic accelerated the ongoing trends in religious change. And it said that the number of Americans who never attend religious services has increased significantly And now roughly one in three American adults never attend any sort of religious service of any kind. Now, the fastest decline were among young people, those who are single, and self-identified political liberals. The slowest decline was in the opposite group, older, married, conservative, and this was interesting, those with college degrees. No group increased in attendance. So it was either big decline or slow decline. But the interesting thing about the article was these attendance trends, it wasn't about the effects they're having on the church, but the effects they're having on our society. Now the National Bureau of Economic Research, which I'd never heard of before, apparently it's a think tank in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Anyway, they published a paper connecting this decline in religious attendance with an increase in deaths of despair. Now, deaths of despair is a technical term coined in 2015 by two Princeton economists. And they were seeking to find out what was causing the decline in life expectancy in our country. For 200 years, life expectancy has increased every year until the last five and then it started going down. It sort of plateaued for a little while, and now it's going down. So they've been studying this now for about 10, 15 years, what's going on. And they discovered the dramatic increase in death rates is coming from three causes. Drug overdoses, suicides, and alcoholic liver disease. In the last 20 years, deaths from those three causes have increased between 50 and 400 percent. And their conclusion is that people have gotten so tired of living or so overwhelmed by the hardships of life that they've either quit living or turned to some form of substance abuse to dull the pain. And so the big question is, why do people do that? And they gave three reasons. They said... That the pillars that once helped give life meaning, a good job, a stable home life, and a voice in the community have all eroded. Now, this new study claims in the last three years, the decrease in religious attendance and the increase in deaths of despair are affecting the same group of people. Now, all the studies say the trends have been going uh, this way for about 40 years, but have significantly increased since the pandemic. So what does all this have to do with the book of Job? Well, let's look at those reasons again. The loss of a good job, the loss of a stable home life, the loss of having a voice in the community combined with or resulting in a loss of faith, all of which directly correlate to increasing despair. What has Job lost? His livelihood, his home and family, his position in the society, and now we have this very public struggle with faith. And what has been the result for the last five chapters? Increasing despair. Now, that despair has actually been deepened by well-meaning but ill-advised friends. And last week we saw Eliphaz speak. Somewhat gently, but he spoke about the justice of God and how people get what they deserve. And Job answered him out of frustration and basically challenged everything he said. So this week, Eliphaz steps back, and another friend, Bildad, steps forward. Bildad isn't nearly as gentle. And he doubles down on the justice argument, adding that not only is God just, but he is fair. People really do get what they deserve. And to top it off, he basically says, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. So let's see how this debate goes. Starts with Job chapter 8. We find several accusations. Starting at the beginning of the chapter, he says, Then Bildad the Shui answered and said, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against Him, He has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then He will rouse Himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. So Job has just finished, as we saw last week, his second melancholy monologue. He had his long lament back in chapter 3, Tom referred to earlier, and now he has answered his friend Eliphaz in chapter 6 and 7 by pointing to his unexplainable suffering. And now, very impatient, the next friend, Bildad, I read a great article about this that said, don't be a Bildad. Thought that that was the best part of the article was the title. Um, anyways, Bildad, the shoeite, he jumps in, And he basically tells Job he's full of hot air. He calls him a windbag. Verse 2, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? There ought to be like an Old Testament insult generator or something because we've got one right here. Now, before we get down on Bildad too much, we should note, Job's already admitted this back in chapter 6. He said, do you think you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? So Bildad is just throwing Job's words back in his face. Now you might think it's really time for Bildad to cut Job some slack. But no. Of all the Bible's many colorful characters, none is quite as exasperating as Job's friends. I mean... Herod might chop off your head. Judas might stab you in the back. But Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are going to beat you with Bible verses. And now Bildad continues the practice of taking God's truth and hitting Job over the head with it. Verse 3, does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert the right? Of course not, thinks Job. Probably Verse 4, if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hands of their transgression. All 10 of Job's children have died. So this is like an ouch, that hurts, Job would think, probably. Verse 5, if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, what do you think I've been doing, thinks Job, Probably. If you're pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And I'm guessing Job thinks I'm as righteous as I know how to be and God hasn't helped me. Instead, he sent you. Probably. We actually don't know what Job thinks because the text doesn't tell us, but those are as good a guess as any. And then Bildad uh, prophesies over Job, verse 7, and though you're beginning with small, your latter days will be very great. This echoes an earlier prophecy of Eliphaz in, in chapter 5, that Job will be delivered, have many offspring, live to a ripe old age. And somehow these two terrible comforters have spoken words that will actually come true. And so then Bildad goes on and he tells Job, you know, I'm not speaking for myself. Surely in the grand scheme of things, we were born yesterday, we know nothing... But our ancestors have searched out such questions and they're smarter than us and we can learn from their wisdom. So now he brings up the timeless question of why would a good God allow bad things to happen? Now he's basically saying, others have pondered these issues before us, we should learn everything we can from their wisdom and experience. But that—he's relying on tradition, Eliphaz had relied on visions from the Lord, but neither are real trustworthy. According to Bildad, the ancient elders believed in a straight cause and effect. You do something bad, bad things happen. No surprise there. This is essentially uh, the uh, summary of what they're saying. So he goes on. I'm just going to summarize verses 9 through 19. Uh, when the river dries up, the reeds wither and die. God is the source of life. Those who forget him will perish. Without God, your confidence will break apart like spider webs. Surely you may start life with a growth spurt like a plant in the sun, but soon you'll be destroyed with no one to remember you. So that's encouraging. You don't want these guys to show up when you're discouraged, when you're depressed, when you're suffering. These are not the people you want to come visit you in the hospital and basically say, well, you know, this is the way it is. You got what you deserved. You're probably a pretty bad person. You don't want that, okay? You want other people to come in and say, you know, can I pray for you Um, and that kind of thing. And I think Bildad reacts a little bit like he realizes, you know, that sounded pretty harsh. Um, And so he ends on a more positive note starting in verse 20. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers, He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the ten of the wicked will be no more. And so for the second time, we see this would-be comforter speaking words containing some truth, perhaps even some encouragement. And Bildad gives us this interesting intellectual discourse, including the perspective of the ancient fathers. And yet his words miss the mark. They bring no relief to Job. We see very little compassion from Bildad. Rather, we see Bildad making Job's life even more miserable because he equates Job's suffering with the just actions of a righteous God towards a deserving transgressor, basically says, you get what you deserve. You know, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, bad things happen to you. Guess what? You must be a bad person. And he has passed judgment without any biblical evidence to support his conclusion. He has equated material blessings with the reward of righteous living just as a prosperity gospel in our day has done. And yet we're going to learn that it's God's view of Job that really matters, not what his three friends think. And so with us, the ultimate test is not what everyone else thinks, but ultimately what does God think. And so Job responds, and he responds with some affirmations. Uh, Bill that has now joined Eliphaz in repeating old formulas, God blesses the righteous, curses the wicked. So if you're suffering, you've done something wrong. So here and now in chapter 9, Job makes two affirmations, agreeing with Bildad, but letting him know he's not guilty of what Bildad is accusing him of. And the first thing he says is that God is mighty. Beginning of chapter 9. Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, One could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? So Job's response to Bildad shows that he acknowledges the truth of some of what's been said. He knows that a man cannot successfully contend with God. Verse 3, that he can be condemned by his own words, which he'll repeat again later on. He becomes... Even more agitated because he's struggling with his sufferings and the reasons for them. However, the universality of suffering in a fallen world means that no one can escape it. So Job wonders what it takes for a person to be exempt from suffering. Who can avoid it if all are condemned to suffer? And this perplexes Job. And his bewilderment fills him with bitterness. And so in a moment of despair, he begins to doubt God's goodness. And here the righteous Job actually speaks in error, but it's it's more sort of questioning. Jump down to verses 22 to 24, chapter 9. He says, it is all one, therefore I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of his judges. If it is not he, then who then is it? And Job knows that God is all-powerful. And there's nothing you can do to change that. You just have to accept it. And so he basically leaves us with this question. If God's not doing this, who is? But then he changes very unexpectedly. He sort of transitions. We know... Job is speaking, they're all speaking in poetry. And Job's a great poet. And all of a sudden he transitions to this tribute to God's majesty. And he marvels that God is the creator. That's the second thing he says. And he's picking up at verse 5. He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun, and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, I had to look that up, and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out, and marvelous things beyond number." Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, What are you doing? Now, his statement in verse 8, he alone stretches out the heavens, echoes the words of the psalmist, actually, several psalms. One example, Psalm 147, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. So he's saying that God is happy, or or Job is happy to accept the existence of the stars, of the constellations with all their positions and their movements. In verse 9, he says God made the Bear and Orion, those are constellations, and the Pleiades, another constellation, and the chambers of the south. And he agrees, verse 10 God does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. And so God's handiwork is obvious to Job. And he acknowledges God is mighty. God is the creator. God is powerful. It's clear to anyone willing to look, but he doesn't see God's presence. He's crying out, verse 11, Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, and I do not perceive him. And so he thinks that God is still angry with him, and thus he remains angry with God. And that brings us to Job's continuing anger, which is chapter 10. Job 10 and anger. Now, Job 10 actually sounds familiar, uh, Because much of it is based on Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is one of the great psalms written by King David. And it begins, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And David is amazed at the nearness of God. He rejoices in how well God knows him. He says he cannot escape God's presence, nor does he want to. Later on in Psalm 139, verse 8, he says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. Make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So David marvels uh, at God is present everywhere. And then he talks about how God made him. And he says God knitted him together in his mother's womb. God planned his path from birth to the end of his days. And David longs to be even closer to have God search and remove any evil from his thoughts. And it's an amazing psalm. But then we get back to Job 10, and it's like the anti-Psalm 139. He basically takes David's words and reverses them. And so he says, starting in chapter 10, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Jumping down to verse 8, your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? One writer claimed that Job is comparing his embryonic form to cheese doodles. Just a thought. Then he says, verse 11 and 12, and again, he's pulling all this from Psalm 139. You clothed me with skin and flesh, you knit me together with bones and sinews, you have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. And he's saying, I remember when your presence gave me life. I remember experiencing your love. I remember your care for me and my care for you. Was that previous life a lie? Were you planning to spring this on me all along? He goes on picking up at verse 14. If I sin, you watch me and do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head, for I am filled with disgrace and look on my affliction. And were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion and again work wonders against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your vexation toward me. You bring fresh troops against me. And essentially, Job is saying, Why did you make me just to destroy me? Why are you scrutinizing me and judging me and hunting me down? You know I can't win against you. And so then Job starts back up with the I wish I was dead theme. It's the same song he was singing back in chapter three. And he repeats that, verse 20. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer before I go And I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order where light is as thick darkness. And what we're given here, which I think it's easy to miss, is we're given a great contrast between David in Psalm 139 and Job in Job 10. To David, God's presence is a comforting blanket of protection. To Job, God's presence is suffocating. Job asks God for space to find a little cheer before he leaves this world for good. And Job imagines death as the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadows without any order where light is as thick darkness. All images that are repeated from chapter 3. But David has a response in Psalm 139. He says... If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. So for David, no darkness is able to conquer God's light. God sees into the deepest, darkest pit and can bring us out. He is with us uh, all the way through the valley of the shadow of death in our lives, Do not end in death and darkness and gloom and shadow, as Job thinks. Rather, he says, God will lead us in the way everlasting. And part of the problem here, the root of Job's anger, is that God's presence has become negative to him. And sometimes we feel the same. For David, God's presence is comfort. For Job, it brings nothing but anger and anguish. Which leaves us with the question... How do you get from Job 10 to Psalm 139? How do you get from Job 10 to Psalm 139? And this is really what Job's trying to figure out. I think it's why he quotes Psalm 139 so much. He's trying to figure this out. So he makes two appeals directly to God. And he tells, he tells his friends, I know your formulas, but how can a mere mortal please God? And perhaps Job's thinking of his earlier efforts and his life uh, pre-pandemic, you might say, including prayers and sacrifices for his now 10 deceased children. And if Job, of all people, is punished by God, how can anyone be righteous? So first, Job appeals for litigation and he imagines a celestial lawsuit. Almighty God of the universe versus poor old sick Job. How could the scales of justice ever tip in Job's favor? And although Job knows himself to be righteous, he also knows that there's no way he can defend himself in the courts of heaven. Back to chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. He says, how then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. Essentially saying, I'm a good guy. But what can I say to an almighty God? Now, in a human court of law, the parties can serve each other with various requests for information. They can interview each other, take depositions. There's examination and cross-examination, all of which has to be answered under oath. But Job doesn't have his own lawyer, and he needs one. He needs an advocate, somebody to advocate for him. And for the life of him, he can't think how he's going to answer God. And he certainly doesn't believe that God would answer him. And so all he can do is appeal for mercy. And so this appeal for litigation just fails from the start. Which brings us to his second appeal, which is an appeal for mediation. This brings us back to the important question at the beginning of chapter 9, where he says, how can a man be in the right before God? And this is the question he's trying to answer. So we go to chapter 9, starting at verse 27. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering. For I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lie. Yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man speaking of God as I am, that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hands on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Job is asking about the need for a mediator. The New King James translates verse 33 as, Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. To put it in more modern language, Job is proclaiming his problem. God is altogether alien from me. How can I speak to him, much less face him in some heavenly courtroom? How I wish for a mediator who could come and stand between us with one hand on each of our shoulders, someone to take away God's punishing rod so I'm no longer terrified. And if I had that, I could speak to God with confidence. And Job sees his need of a mediator, believing that such a person will help him. And he knows that a mediator is required to approach God. This suggests he's thinking of someone other than God himself. And it's actually a resilient hope For a mediator to stand between God and man. Now, we can feel Job's pain, just as we feel our own pain in various trials. We don't have to despair with Job. The good news is that God is awesome, and as we read earlier, God is not against us, God is for us. And the reality is God, in fact, grants both of Job's appeals, there is a heavenly court, and we are given an advocate, and we do have a mediator. And God sent his son to bridge the gap between his holiness and our sin. The New Testament states that Jesus Christ is our advocate. First John 2, 1 John 2.1, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Not only is he our advocate, being God and man, both divine and human, he's also our mediator. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus Christ, substitutionary atonement, taking our place, his atonement for sinners is necessary. In order to sanctify us before God, we need to be made holy in order to come into the presence of a holy God. And the high priestly work of Christ as our mediator allows sinners to do just that with an assurance of acceptance. We read that in Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Because we have an advocate, an advocate because we have a mediator, we can now draw near to the throne of grace. We can bring our issues, our problems, our questions, our debates to him with confidence. God doesn't reconcile us by our prayers or our penances, but through faith in the atoning work of the one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 8 says, so 8 through 10, But God chose his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Job longs for a mediator to plead his case with God. And ultimately, Job's appeal for this third-party mediator is fulfilled In Christ. Romans 8.34 says. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Is praying for us. Is pleading for us. Christ was wounded and crushed. So we could be healed and cleansed. God grants Job's appeals. And now with Christ as our advocate and Christ is our mediator who indeed is interceding for us we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need you should thank God for that do that now and then i'll close let's pray Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and confess our failure to trust Christ as our advocate and mediator. We forget that he is interceding for us. Remind us of these great gospel truths so that they will give us hope and lift us from the depths of despair. Lord, if anyone here this morning is suffering in despair, let us point them to the man Christ Jesus, who loves them and gave himself up for them and for us. Grant us compassion and kindness for them. Some of us are in despair, grant us mercy and grace. Now, though we may not feel friendly right now, thank you for friends, for loving sisters and brothers. One of them might be our greatest chance today to see your son, to hear your voice, to know your heart to experience your compassion. And so work in each of our hearts this month as we learn from a man called Job. Draw us ever closer to the one mediator between God and man who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Our advocate with the Father, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.